Well, even though we can admit that our culture is going off the rails and getting darker by the day, it seems, there are some things that even our culture resonates with. And I would argue they resonate with that because they're from a biblical foundation. One of the things that our culture would resonate with, despite how bad it seems to be getting, is that it's an honorable and a noble thing for someone to give their life to save someone else. The idea that someone would actually die in the process of saving someone else, our culture, as bad as it is, would still say that is a good and honorable and noble thing. To die that others might live is a good thing. Married people can pretty easily think of dying to save their spouse or, of course, parents dying to save their children. Friends, of course, in battle, dying to save their friends in battle. What about dying for those who aren't our friends? What about dying for those who are against us? What about dying for those who are our enemies? And church, that's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. You know, we have a lot to get through this morning, so let's get going in Matthew 26 where we will see Jesus starting this example of how he did that exact thing. Last week, we marched closer to the inevitable cross by focusing on the prayerful dependence of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane versus the prayerless arrogance of Peter. And prayer is essential. It is the language of dependence. When we pray, we are expressing that we are dependent on God for everything. It prepares us to face temptation, to accept God's will over ours. It prepares us for our mission and ultimately prepares us for what God has ordained for us, just like Jesus did. This week, we see two of Jesus' disturbing predictions come true. The betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter. And in between those two tragic events, the arrest of Jesus and his trial, which I will use in as much air quotes as I possibly can, because it's not a trial, it's a sham. And they are only seeking reasons to put him to death. Let's jump back in and refresh our memory. Look at Matthew 26 in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one that I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus and at once said to him, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said, Friend, do what you've come to do. And they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Matthew tells us that this is happening, this action is happening while Jesus is still speaking. So in other words, if we kind of look back to the last passage, while he's still kind of rousing the disciples from their little nappy time, right? They were sleeping and he let them sleep and he had finally said, get up. It's time. My betrayer's coming. So as he's speaking those words and getting the disciples up from their little nap, this is when Judas and this, this gang of people show up with swords and clubs. And Jesus had his emotional moments in the garden for sure, but he accepted the Father's will, and now he is fully resolved to face what the Father has ordained. R.T. France points out the contrast between Jesus in the garden and now this Jesus, fully resolved to accept the Father's will. France writes, the, the Jesus whom Judas and his posse meet now is resolute, calm, and authoritative. This is the Jesus that Judas and this posse of armed people 
roll up on. And as he's in the midst of all this, Judas arrives with friends. Well, not actually friends, right? Because friends don't usually come up with swords and clubs and things to hurt other people. Judas seems to know exactly where to find Jesus. He said, well, if he's not in the upper room, he's probably in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's go there. So they all go there to arrest Jesus. He arrives, of course, with this great crowd probably in this was just Jewish temple security. There's all kinds of speculation as to who was in there, were there Roman soldiers in there, were there not? We don't know. There could have been. There could have not been. This could have just been Jewish police, Jewish security forces for the high priests. Judas had apparently worked out a sign with his friends, not friends. The one that he would kiss would be Jesus. And that part always kind of messed me up because I'm always like, don't you know who Jesus is? Like, why do you have to have this weird symbol of like who Jesus is? But as I was looking into this, right? Well, number one, it's dark. It's in the middle of the night. It's, it's in the shade of all these olive trees and everything like that. And let's face it, one sojourner from Galilee probably looks like a lot of sojourners from Galilee. So they want to make absolutely sure that they arrest Jesus. And so Judas goes up to him, calls him rabbi again, which we said was super important last week. Jesus never, uh, Judas never called Jesus Lord. He calls him teacher. Judas thinks he's a great teacher, but he doesn't think he's Lord. He calls him rabbi and kisses him. And really, this is, in our culture, we're like, well, that's weird, one dude kissing another dude. But in that culture, that was expected. That's how... They greeted one another and still greet one another. The weird thing was that if you're a student, you never go up to your rabbi first. You never speak first, and you certainly never just go up and kiss him first. You wait to be spoken to. You wait to be told how to be greeted, whatever else. There's, there's a hierarchy there. So Judas just strolling right up to Jesus, calling him rabbi and just blatantly kissing him on the cheek is a major violation of etiquette and shows the pride of Judas. The root word here for kiss is phylos, which means friend or brotherly love. And Jesus responds to Judas saying rather coldly, friend, do what you came to do. Which in the Greek is another like little weird thing. It's, it's very hard to translate in English. It's like, friend, just do it. Get on with it. I think Jesus is, is irritated by this. I think he's irritated by Judas kissing him. I think he's irritated by the, the lack of respect already. And of course, what everything is signaling. I think he's showing his humanity in this. And furthermore, the word that Jesus uses for friend, you would expect him in the Greek to use that word, phylos, and use it right. No, he doesn't use that. He uses a word that just says an acquaintance. Like we have stuff in common. That's it. Somebody you might meet on the street. So Jesus gives him a little, a little barb, I guess you will. A little jab. And says, look, just do what you've come to do. I think this is the, the, humani the humanity of Jesus that we see. And Judas is truly not a brother or a friend of Jesus, and Jesus calls him out. And while Judas is betraying the Son of Man with a brotherly kiss, Jesus knows that he is not a true brother, and that's when things suddenly escalate. Look at verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to them, 
Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And all the disciples left him and fled. Immediately after this fake brotherly kiss, Jesus is, or Jesus is pounced upon by the people. That's all they wanted to see. Once they had that kiss, they are ready to go. And so they pounce on Jesus. They begin to put him in, in custody. One of the disciples, John tells us that it's, of course, Peter, grabs his sword and goes for a headshot to try and swing at one of these guys. We find out, I think his name is Malchus in one of the other Gospels, right? He swings at his head and cuts off an ear. Peter is a fisherman. He is not a Navy SEAL, okay? So he's not doing this well. Probably fishermen don't use swords very much. We also see that, that Jesus immediately scolds him. He says, Peter, put the sword away. Everybody who lives by the sword is going to die by the sword. That's not what I'm doing here. It's not about an armed conflict, Peter. Jesus says, besides, if it was, I, I, we're going to crush it. Because you think I can call my heavenly father and they're not going to send me 12, more than 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion was 6,000 men. So if my math is correct, we're talking over 72,000 angels could be at his disposal doesn't really mean that much because if you remember in 1 Kings, there was one angel that killed over 185,000 men. So a band of hooligans with sticks and clubs and swords is probably not that big of a deal. One commentator writes, though, Jesus really scolds him because Peter's, again, acting impulsively, acting out of the flesh. This is not a war. This is not an armed conflict. Jesus isn't bringing his kingdom with force as earthly kings do. He's not invading a country. And Jesus reminds them that, hold on, guys, this is all going according to scriptural prophecy anyway. This is the way that it has to be. Not sure exactly which scriptures Jesus is talking about. Probably still Zechariah, as we said last week, that you strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered from Zechariah 13. But Luke twenty-two thirty-seven in his account has a little bit more clarity. So just look briefly at Luke 22 in his account. Jesus says, for I tell you this, that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what was written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus calling on the Old Testament and saying, no, 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 I, I have to be, this, this has to happen this way. All of this is part of the plan. Jesus, and I love this, he turns his attention to the crowd and starts yelling at the crowd. He's like, what is the deal? Like, I sat over there teaching Sunday school all day, every day for three years, right? Or abouts. And you didn't do anything to come and get me. But now all this drama, you come at me with swords and clubs like I'm some sort of criminal. What do you think I'm going to do? Why all this drama? And Jesus says, I'll tell you why this is happening. Again, because it's part of the Father's plan. All this is happening. He says it again. He says it twice. All this is happening to fulfill the scriptures. The Messiah will come and he will come in a certain way and this is exactly how it has happened. 
We think of places like Isaiah 53 talking about the suffering servant who was despised, he was rejected, he was wounded, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he was taken away in oppression and judgment. And Jesus says, this is exactly how it's supposed to go. Then we read one of the saddest verses because the prediction from last week in verse 31 where Jesus said that truly you will all fall away tonight because of me. Those words come true at the end of verse 56. Matthew simply says, Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus said in verse 31, just a few hours before, that you all will fall away because of me. And they all shook their fists and puffed their chests and said, We will never desert you, Jesus. We will never abandon you. And here it happens. A few hours later, it happens. They all run away, scared. Jesus is left completely alone in the hands of his enemies. So here's the point. Jesus knows what's like what it's like to be abandoned. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned. Think about this with me. Jesus prayed all night in agony, literally in blood, sweat, and tears, in despair of his own impending death and everything around it. He asked his father if there was any way that you could accomplish this plan without me going to the cross. The son asks the father in prayer, and the father says no. What Jesus predicted that his disciples would desert him had just happened, despite, again, their false bravado proclamations a few hours earlier. They abandon him. Many of us can totally relate to being abandoned by our family or our closest friends at the hour of our greatest need. It's an awful feeling. And Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. We need other people in our lives. God has created us as social creatures designed to live in community with one another. Maybe you've been abandoned before. Maybe you've been hurt before. Maybe nobody was there when it was your hour of greatest need. And so maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you're bitter. Maybe you just say, forget it. I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody. I'll just do this myself. And that's not the way it works. You do need people. Specifically, as Christians, we need our brothers and sisters in Christ. There are 30 times in the Bible which talks about the one another's. When we were in pre-launch in 2016, I taught through them all in our, our core team meetings for those who might remember that time so far away. We're called to love one another. We're called to bear one another's burdens, care for one another, comfort each other, and many more. And this is the essence of the church. Church membership is not optional for a Christian. We need to be in consistent, committed community with one another. We need to be knowing and growing each other. And how much more do we need each other when we're suffering or when we're sick? We need others to visit us and strengthen us and encourage us. When there are enemies closing in from every side, we need to remember who our brothers and sisters in Christ are. Jesus is handed over to his enemies by one of his closest friends. Don't miss that. That's how it starts with Judas, one of the 12 Matthew throws in there. Matthew says, Judas, one of us. We ate together, we slept together, we ministered together. Yeah, that Judas sold Jesus out. He's handed over to his enemies by one of his closest friends. He's taken into custody and maybe one of the last sights he sees before he is taken away 
are the backs of his disciples running away. And the nightmare is not over, of course. Look at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him in a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony of Jesus against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And so Jesus is led away to the high priest's house. The high priest's name is Caiaphas, uh, where the scribes and the elders were gathered for just a council meeting in the middle of the night at Caiaphas' house for no reason, right? Peter is following this group at a distance. He makes his way into the courtyard where a group of servants, and Luke tells us they had a fire pit and they were all getting warm by the fire. Judas, or sorry, Peter, following at a distance, stays there. Our text says, I don't know why ESV says uh, he went to see the end. It's a Greek word, telos. It's not really, it is the end, but it's more the outcome. Peter followed at a safe distance to see what was going to happen. One author says that this is Peter. He's, he's halfway between courage and cowardice. He's almost there. There's no other disciples with him. We have to remember that. Maybe it was Peter that night when, when the, the sword came out and he thought this was the moment that Jesus said I was going to deny him. And he's like, no, not tonight. And that's when he starts swinging wildly. And now he realizes that he messed that up too. He's following Jesus at a distance. Matthew tells us that the whole council is there. If it were the whole council, that would be 70 men. They usually only need a quorum probably only a third or so to have an official meeting. They were seeking false testimony. And what does Matthew say? So that they could put him to death. Doesn't sound like he's getting a fair trial, does it? They were seeking testimony not to find out the truth. They were seeking testimony so that they can get him executed. That's what they were doing. So fair trial? Absolutely not. They're looking to frame him and get him executed, and they're willing to do anything that they have to in order to do that. They're trying to look for false witnesses. They have a hard time. In Israel, this is another spot designated as Caiaphas's house. There's a, a church that's there. It may or may not be the, the spot. This is, this is the church that is there. I stole that picture from the interwebs in full disclosure this is now a church that's called St. Peter's in Galicantu, which is actually really funny because Galicantu means rooster crow. And so that's the church that Peter supposedly denied Jesus in. It wasn't a church at the time, of course. It was Caiaphas's house, or what they think was Caiaphas's house. There's a, a famous piece of French artwork. I think I have a close-up of that that I did actually take myself. And I'm not even going to try to say it in French. So all my French people, I never took French in high school. Le outrageous something or other. Caiaphas. You can make fun of me later. But what it means is the outrage at Caiaphas's house. It's there and you, it's beautiful when you look at it, this picture. Underneath this church complex is a series of caves affectionately referred to as the Jesus Dungeon. And there's one shot of what people surmise may have been where the high priests and this gang of people dragged Jesus in and probably chained him to a wall underneath Caiaphas' house to question him. 
And so while Peter is outside of the fire pit, Jesus is inside in the custody of his enemies, and there's already so much wrong with this whole picture. We already know they're looking for false witnesses, not for uh, tell the truth, tell them what they want to hear so that they can get them framed. They've decided he needs to die, and they're just looking for a way to make that happen. This is also that this trial was in the middle of the night, not in the daytime that Jewish law said it had to be. It was at Caiaphas' house, not in one of the temple court proceedings that it needed to be. It was also in the middle of the feast, and they were going to make a decision immediately, and Jewish law said you couldn't do that. You need to wait 24 hours in order to make a decision. They certainly didn't do that. Not to mention that Jesus didn't have any witnesses for himself. There are plenty of witnesses against him, but it's against the law. On so many levels, this trial is against the law. Let's pick up the back half of verse 60 and see what happens with the false witnesses. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? So they find these two fine upstanding citizens, pay them exactly whatever they need to be paid to say exactly what they need to hear. They testify. They heard Jesus say this outrageous thing that he was going to destroy the temple and he was going to build it again in three days. This is just, if you've ever been to Israel and you've seen the temple, like it took the Roman army a long time to destroy the temple and they didn't even destroy the whole thing. So I think one man that they would even take this seriously, that Jesus would say, yes, I'm going to destroy this temple and build it in three days or rebuild it in three days is ridiculous. But nevertheless, the temple is the presence of God. It's the holiest site in Israel for Judaism. You can't go around saying you're going to destroy the temple. That's bad. And so this is, might be the only thing that they can get him on. One can surmise when this quote is coming from, likely Jesus' comments that John records for us in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2 and verse 18, so the Jews said to him, after he of course went and flipped over tables in the temple, like, what sign do you show us for doing this? In other words, who authorizes you to do this? And, and he answered them saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? It's like, okay, guys. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Jesus is not talking about destroying the actual physical temple in the middle of Jerusalem. He's talking about his body that three days later will be resurrected from the dead. And this is the best thing that they can do, is a statement that they misinterpret and try to pin it to Jesus. The high priest finally, after who knows how long, asks Jesus, what is your defense? Finally, hey, let's hear from Jesus. That's a good idea. Let's ask him his side of the story. Look at verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? 
You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him, saying, mocking to him, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is that who struck you? Jesus first says nothing. He, he's asked, what's your defense to this whole temple-destroying thing? And Jesus says nothing, just like Isaiah 53 said he would be silent, like a lamb going to the slaughter. This only makes the high priest matter. The high priest demands, I am putting you under an oath now, Jesus. Tell us, straight up, right now, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus answers in this beautiful way in the Greek, and it's the same way that he answers Judas. When Judas asked, am I the one? Same thing. He says, you, you said it. Your words are right. Yeah, I am the Messiah. If that weren't enough, Jesus then goes beyond that and says, I tell you from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And at this point, the high priest loses his mind. He tears his robes, which is a sign of, of grieving and shock. The high priest was forbidden by the law of God to tear their robes. There's something else the other people had to do. Not the high priest, but the high priest tears his robes. And Jesus could not have used any more messianic language to answer the question of whether or not he's the Messiah. It's brilliant. He uses his favorite messianic title for himself, the Son of Man, right out of Daniel 7. He also says that he'll be seated at the right hand of power, clearly a reference to the seat of authority and kingly rule, the right hand of God the Father himself. And he also says that you will see him coming on the clouds. Just like in Matthew 24. Almost always when Scripture references something coming on the clouds, it's judgment, like a storm that is about to break. He says, you will see me coming on the clouds in judgment, inferring that Jesus is the one who will be doing the judgment. William Lane Craig comments, here in one fell swoop, Jesus affirms that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the coming Son of Man. He compounds his crime by adding he's seated at God's right hand, a claim that is truly blasphemous in Jewish ears. This is what pushed everything over the edge into blasphemy. Except, of course, that it's all true. That Jesus is those things. The high priest tears his robes. Instantly, they decide that he's guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. Worse yet, they begin beating him and mocking him. Luke tells us, I think, I think it's Luke, that they blindfolded him and they take turns hitting him and spitting in the face of Jesus, mocking him. All right, Messiah, which one of us just hit you? Tell us, prophesy. They hit him, they slap him. Here's the point. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. In one sense, they understood exactly what he was saying. He could not have been more clear. He was claiming to be Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. But in a bigger sense, the reason he's in so much trouble is that they don't believe a word of it. I know we know what you're saying. You're claiming to be the Messiah, but we, of course, reject you. You're just an idiot who thinks he's the Messiah. You're starting trouble, and now this has to end. 
He's a man claiming to be God. They say he's blaspheming. Make no mistake, if you ever hear that Jesus, someone say that Jesus never claimed to be God in the New Testament, tell them to read the New Testament, especially the Gospels. This is what got Jesus killed. He claimed to be God. He didn't claim to be God. They, they let him walk around. But he claimed to be the Messiah directly in prophetic Old Testament language. And I think not being believed is one of the most frustrating things for us, especially when it is the truth. Have you ever been in that situation where it was the truth and you weren't being believed? And of course, we could relate to this on a host of interpersonal levels. But maybe most of all, or maybe most helpful and powerful is our evangelism. When we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and we say that this is the spiritual reality, that there really is a God, and that we really are separated from him, and there really is wrath for sin, and without the blood of Jesus Christ covering that sin and, for, and forsaking the wrath of God for you, your wrath, I mean God's wrath for your sin, you are headed to hell, an eternity in hell. And to have that rejected, to say, that's not true. I don't believe that. When it really is the truth. I mean, is there, is there a greater rejection that can happen? To be blown off as being ridiculous or a, a, a Christian freak. And of course, the church has done no favors in cultivating that sentiment from megachurch celebrity pastors focused only on church growth and attractionalism to mainline denominations that have become apostate and celebrate things that God calls abominable to small-town churches who have men in their pulpits who'd rather tell jokes and speak about current political agendas than preach the gospel. No wonder people don't believe us. So what are we to do? There's only one recourse, of course, which is to be faithful. We have to do the hard work of glorifying God by making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. We have to live lives ourselves of personal holiness so that our testimony, when we do get a chance to speak it, is actually backed up by the holiness of our lives. We have to know orthodox Christian doctrine, the faith delivered once for all the saints. We must know our Bibles inside and out. We must know how to spot, spot false teaching and call it out. And so church, when we do the work of the church that Jesus himself calls for us to do and we're not believed, guess what? Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. When we speak the truth, when we stand for the truth, when we live lives of holiness and integrity and we're, we're mocked for it, how much more does Jesus know what that feels like? And he also knows the pain of more betrayal. And that's where we land the plane this morning. Look at verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you mean. When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man, that guy, he was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up to Peter and said to him, Certainly you too are one of them because your accent betrays you. And he began to evoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept, wept 
bitterly. Recall last week, Jesus predicted that Peter would betray him three times before the rooster called. And Peter, of course, vehemently disagreed and said, never, I will die first before I deny you. But here we are. Peter followed the whole group into the courtyard. Verse 58 said he followed at a distance, right? He remained distant from Jesus while he was being beaten and mocked and sentenced to death. And for some reason, he remained at a safe distance and warmed himself by a fire with others all around. Not the brightest plan. Don't know why that's one of the things I'm just like, you really think? I mean, this is the high priest's house. You, you, you're on his patio around his fire pit with all of his servants. Don't you think you're going to get picked off as somebody who doesn't belong there? So you already stuck out like a sore thumb. The first person asked him, say, hey, you're with that guy they have inside, right? You're with that guy, Jesus, the one they just brought in, right? Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. No, not me. I don't know, must be somebody else. Peter tries to change the scenery after the first denial. He tries to head towards the entrance, except that he's picked off again. Someone says out loud, that guy, that was, he, was, he was one of the guys with that other guy that they have in there, Jesus. He was one of them. Second time, Peter denies it with an oath, and maybe we can translate this into our current cultural vocabulary by saying something like, I swear on my mother's grave. I don't know him. Leave me alone. After a while, the bystanders not giving up, then they approach Peter, a little maybe mini gang of people come up to Peter, because now they're probably irritated because he's lying to them twice. He says, look, dude, just fess up, okay? Like, your accent betrays you. You're from Galilee. We can tell you're from out of town. You have the same accent as everybody else. Just tell us. You know Jesus. Peter, by now, angry and probably scared for his life himself, for the third time, now invokes a curse on himself, probably something like, may God strike me dead. I do not know this man. And immediately, immediately, can you imagine that? After the third time that he says this, immediately he hears the rooster crowing. Sometimes when I'm out walking the dog and it's dark, the farm across the street, it's dead silent, except for when that rooster starts going. And it just pierces the night. Think of Peter realizing at that moment that what he said he would never do, he did. He betrayed his friend. Not once, not twice, three times. It must have hit Peter like a ton of bricks. Jesus was right. I've denied him. Matthew tells us he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter, devastated at his failure, Maybe I could say it this way. Jesus knows what it's like to have people fail him. Jesus knows what it's like to have people fail him. It's hard to exactly know what's going on in Peter's mind. I'm sure we can all relate to the weight of it, the weight of failure. Knowing that he's failed his friend, his savior, his Lord, who was inside being beaten, having his death sentence sealed, he was outside denying he ever knew him. 
At the point when Jesus needed his disciples the most, they failed him on multiple occasions. And people have failed us, and let's face it, we have all failed others. But once again, nothing comes close to the way that we each individually have failed Jesus our Lord. In all the ways that people can fail us, and people can fail us in some really big ways, they cannot and do not compare to the ways that we personally have failed God. We are called to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we fail at that every day in many ways, hopefully small ways, but we fail that in colossal ways when we put ourselves on the throne instead of God. This has to frame the way that we look at the failure of others. Our failure, meaning our sin, is so much more than the way anybody can possibly fail us. How can we not forgive others when God has forgiven us of our sinful failures? And one of the biggest ways that we fail Jesus is how faithfully we follow him. Think about this, church. Peter followed Jesus, how? At a distance. Are we following Jesus just safe enough, at safe enough distance? where we can duck out and we want to do what we need to do? Are we following Jesus just at just enough safe distance where people don't recognize that we're with him? Are we following Jesus at just enough safe distance where we don't want to get lumped into being a crazy Christian, where we still want to have a little bit of flexibility in our lives to do what we want to do? At what distance are you following Jesus? Are you following him right up close where he leads you so that where he asks you to go, you go? Or how far back are you following Jesus? While Jesus is leading the way to the Father, calling us home to follow him, are we following him closely? Jesus is inside going through everything he went through in order to bring us to God. Yet we fail him, and we thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ. Do we not? Because there's nobody that will follow Jesus perfect. But Jesus is perfect. So we, fail, we, we follow him. And we thank God for the grace of Jesus. And so where does all this leave us? Maybe I can land the plane this way. Jesus faced death for those who will abandon, reject, and fail him. Jesus faced death for those who will abandon, reject, and and fail him. While Jesus was inside facing his enemies in a sham trial, being condemned for the things he'd never said, sentenced to death for blasphemy when he was actually God in the flesh, he was spit on, he was beaten, he was mocked. His friends were doing what? Deserting him in fear, denying that they ever knew him. Not once, not twice, but three times. And we can all identify as we seek to live out the life of a disciple what it's like to be abandoned, rejected, and failed, and Jesus knows on so much of a greater level. So we have any of those moments where we do feel that. Church, go to the cross and remember that Jesus knows. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Why? Because he has been rejected, he's been abandoned, he's been failed. Chief of which by me. Chief of which by all of us. And he forgives but he did so. He faced death so that we were not abandoned, rejected, and failed by God the Father. There's a Puritan prayer from the Valley of Vision that captures this 
perfectly. And I'll read it. I put it on screen. It's a little long, but hang with me. This is entitled, Love Lusters at Calvary. My Father, enlarge my heart, warm my affections, open my lips, supply the words that proclaim love lusters at Calvary. Their grace removes my burdens and heaps them on thy Son, made a transgressor, a curse, and sin for me. There the sword of thy justice smote the man thy fellow. There thy infinite attributes were magnified. The infinite atonement was made. The infinite punishment was due. The infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. He was cast off that I might be brought in, downtrodden as an enemy so that I might be welcomed as a friend. He surrendered to hell's worst so that I might attend, attain heaven's best. He was stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, at thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made ashamed that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem bowed his head down that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired that I might live forever. O Father, who spared not thine own Son, that thou might sparest me, all this transfer thy love designed and accomplished, help me to adore thee by lips and life. O oh, that every breath might be ecstatic praise, my every step buoyant with delight as I see my enemies crushed, Satan baffled, defeated, and destroyed, sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's gates closed and heaven's portal open. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross, mighty to subdue, to comfort, and save. Jesus faced death for those who will abandon, reject, and fail him. And without that, we would not be able to be welcomed by God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we do think of this, this poignant moment where Jesus marches closer to the cross, where he is now in the hands of his enemies, where he is falsely accused of Lord, where he is beaten, he is mocked, where his friends have abandoned him, they've rejected him, they've failed him. And Lord, without Jesus going through those things, we know that we could never be forgiven. We know that we could never be welcomed. We know that we could never have love lavished upon us. And so, Father, in those moments, would you please remind us of the depth of what Christ accomplished for us? Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Would this be the core of who we are because of what Jesus has done? Jesus has gone through these things so that we don't have to. And when we do, even at a much smaller scale, we are reminded that Jesus knows exactly how we feel. Father, we pray that this truth would resonate with us deeply in our hearts, and we pray it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.